Good morning again, everybody. I'm glad to be here uh, reading the word and hearing the word and proclaiming it together with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to Mark chapter 12 this morning. It's not the Palm Sunday passage. Uh, It comes just a little after. Jesus has come into Jerusalem and already caused a bit of a stir, you might say. Um, There's already a plot afoot to kill Jesus because of that. But Jesus tells this parable, and it's a powerful parable. And in Mark 12, it's between Jesus' authority being challenged and a whole number of things go on. Jesus tells this, and and there are some people who hear the word in a new way because of how Jesus says it. So Mark 12, 1 through 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and others he killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. I've been, as a pastor, I've been public speaking for quite a number of years now and have come to experience the joys and the hazards that come with public speaking. As many pastors will reference, uh, they... They deliver a sermon and they get to the end of the sermon and they, they'll tell you there's the sermon that they planned, there's the sermon they delivered, and there's, there's the sermon they wish they would have delivered. Because we're always going over it, replaying the tape in our mind after the message, thinking, I wish I would have said it this way, or I could have done this differently, or we're always redoing it in our minds afterwards. But what I've come to discover is it's half the thing is the delivery of it, the other half is, and everybody experiences this in emails, texts, face-to-face conversations, phone calls, that what you say and what people hear are not always the same thing. Has anybody else experienced that in the room? You can say one thing, but what's heard is not the same. Now, we experienced this maybe when we were kids, what mom or dad said, we heard differently. Um, Maybe if you have kids, that happens. Um, I know that that after sermons, I'll give you examples not from here, um, I do like it when we talk about things after sermons, but, uh, you know, in a previous church, I had a person who would regularly come up to me when I preached and would say, you know, I really wish you would have said, and then they'd say X, Y, and Z, and it was a particularly packaged statement in charismatic language, and I would say, I did say that. I just didn't use that phrase to say that exact same thing. Oh, you're right. You did do that, right? So what you say and what people hear are sometimes not the same thing. My personal favorite is when I was guest preaching for three weeks years ago, 
and I was there for the third week, um, and uh, I, I hadn't preached yet. I was before the service. I was talking to somebody ahead of the service, and they said, well, pastor, I put a rock in my pocket just like you asked us to last week and walked around with it all week. And I said, I don't think I asked you to do that. And he said, no, no, really, it was in my sermon notes. So he gets his sermon notes out. He's like looking through them. Oh, no, that was Sunday school. And then we go on about our day. What you say and what people hear are sometimes not the same thing and certainly what people remember. There are plenty of ways that people can misunderstand what we say. And there are plenty of ways that people can misunderstand what Jesus was doing when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. In fact, they did regularly misunderstand what he was doing, right? He comes into Jerusalem and he's got these palms, the palms are being waved around. Why are people waving the palms as he comes into Jerusalem? Well, they've got all kinds of different reasons. They've got reasons where they believe he's going to reform the temple or he's going to overthrow Roman oppression or all manner of other things that he could do. And for some of them, maybe they feel exonerated when he comes into Jerusalem. And what does he do? He goes to the temple and he flips over the tables and he chases out the money changers from the temple. And they might think, ah, this, this is what we've been waiting for from this guy. But that's not exactly what Jesus came to do. People have missed expectations in that some of these religious leaders we read about come to Jesus shortly after doing that, because that, by the way, is the last straw for them when Jesus does that in the temple. That's it. They plot to kill him from that point on. They challenge his authority. Hey, what about John's baptism? You know, who gave him authority? And, and Jesus has a great answer back for that. Just after the parable we read, they challenge him on giving taxes to Caesar, or does it belong to God? And Jesus answers their challenge quite well. They have all kinds of different expectations of what he's going to do and what he's going to deliver on. But what we should recognize and the challenge of this parable is what God has given should not be rejected. That is his son. That's the middle of the whole thing. What God has given should not be rejected and that is his son. The tenants miss the point in the parable. The religious leaders miss the point. A lot of people miss the point, but the son is the point. And Jesus is making that point in the parable. And the other thing about that is, as you read the parable, he replaces the tenants. They're doing wrong. But the very fact that Jesus tells the parable doesn't just condemn, but also gives an opportunity for repentance to anybody who would repent and miss the point. And I want us to hear that point this morning. Even if we're doing wrong right now with the stuff that God has given us, there is a chance to repent and do right, to turn. We don't want to miss what God is doing in our midst, particularly with his son and his son in our lives. The son is the key. And the warning that should go with every parable, as you consider this parable, is it's very easy in every single parable to put myself or yourself in as the good guys and everybody else or other people as the bad guys, but let's make sure that we hear what we're supposed to hear in the parable, not what we want to hear in every parable Jesus tells. So let's talk about what was heard, since we kind of started with that formulation. What, was, what you say and what people hear are not always the same. There's, clearly, we can't know all that the religious leaders heard, but it's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people flagged that get the message by the end. They don't like it, but they get it by the end. Obviously, there are crowds of people around because they're afraid of the crowds. That's why they don't take action then. But the people that are flagged, those chief priests, leader, teachers of the law, and the elders are people who are upset at Jesus or have some reason to plot to kill Jesus or get rid of him in some way. 
They hear the message. They get it, we see by verse 12. Jesus uses this example of the vineyard, and while I say we don't know exactly what they heard, the start of that story, when they hear the vineyard, most likely they would have heard echoes of Isaiah 5, because that's one of the more powerful vineyard images. Vineyard is used all throughout the Old Testament. That's one of the more more powerful moments of the vineyard image. Now read verses 1 and 2, because Jesus seems to be playing off this idea, but bringing some different ideas to it. It says, I will sing sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. In Isaiah 5, the vineyard is Israel. God gives Israel everything, the setup they need to be blessed and to bless others with a great bounty. Everything is set up so that there would be produce. But there's not. When Jesus begins his parable, this may very well be what people are thinking. He's talking about Israel, but if you notice, he shifts the meaning, and he adds this bit in from Psalm 118 at the end about the cornerstone. Right? We heard that read this morning in our opening worship time. Then the cornerstone is a, was a messianic verse. People knew that that referenced the coming Messiah at some point. Commentators are unclear today on whether Jesus meant the actual stone that starts the building. You know, in the ancient world, they would put down a literal cornerstone that from that point you set your guidelines and everything else, and that's the, fa- the very foundation of every bit of the wall from that point on. Or if it's the sort of keystone that's the ending thing in the building, either one uh, could fit And it's not exactly clear which stone is in view here, but either one works. But what the audience did not expect, the people that are flagged, is that they're the villains of this story. Is that they're the evil tenants, not Israel. So what was actually said by Jesus, not simply what did they hear. What was actually said, he talks about the vineyard, and whenever Jesus tells a parable, all of his parables are about the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. God the Father is the owner, Jesus is the Son. Not what they expected at first, but they obviously got it by the end. And you can see that, like I said in Mark 12, 12, it says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and went away. They got it. They understood what Jesus was doing here. And I will also point out, um, they, they heard that and they concluded that there was little room to not understand that Jesus is the son in the parable. Jesus didn't leave a lot of wiggle room on how to understand this. And I will note, sometimes people say, why didn't Jesus come out and simply just say, I'm the Messiah? He did, right here. (laughs) I mean, in other places like this, it's fairly clear when he uses passages like this that he's making that claim. That's why they get so upset. It was not their expectation. Now, unlike Isaiah 5, though, what Jesus does here is he shows a fruitful vineyard, right? In Isaiah 5, it says, I I made the vineyard, but it only produced bad fruit. There was nothing worth harvesting. Here, there's plenty worth harvesting. The vineyard is fruitful. And uh, Leviticus 19 talks about when you make a new vineyard or plant a new fruiting tree, uh, that you basically have a period of about 
three years not to harvest, in the fourth year it belongs to the Lord, in the fifth year you can begin to harvest it. Somewhere, we're somewhere in that fourth or fifth year of this. These tenants have been doing this for a while in the story, is what we would know and what people would recognize. And the problem then in this story is not the fruit. There's plenty of it. The problem is the tenants. They're greedy and selfish. They want what's there, and they want it all to themselves. And even the idea of killing the son, by the way, to inherit, that was a possibility. They could conceivably, if there was no other, uh, no one else to inherit from, the tenants could conceivably get it, at least in the ancient world, and the way the land rights worked and all that. And this is, so this is clearly the only son being, that was there standing in their way. But what happens is they missed out on the true bounty that the owner had in store because they wanted everything to themselves. I don't know if you're ever astounded by those stories of people who have an awful lot of money, multiple residences. They're doing fine in life, the Bernie Madoff types in life. And yet they still set up some scheme to get more. Are you ever astounded by this? That is to say, when we're greedy like that, we think it's going to bring freedom, but it tends to bring loss, right? Greed only brings loss, not freedom in the end. It's the same thing that's going on here. They're greedy. They think they're going to have freedom. They think it's going to be theirs, and it presents them only with an opportunity for loss, not for gain. In fact, it could have been way better had they just worked with the landowner. They would have had years of fruitfulness ahead of them. So when the sun arrives, you see, they kill the sun and they lose all potential good that has been sent. That's it. That's the end of the story for them. Their greed ends it. So what should we hear and receive today then from Jesus as he tells this parable? Two simple and large points are what I'd put it under. The first thing is that God will accomplish his will. Seems simple enough. God will accomplish his will. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with palm branches waving, cloaks on the ground, the people were excited, but they were excited for the wrong reason. And yet, what does God do? God still accomplishes his will. When Jesus comes in and he flips over the tables in the temple, they're using the temple, uh, some of that part of the temple, for the wrong reasons. People got greedy and misused what God had given for good. God will still accomplish his will in spite of that. When Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, you have leaders who are misusing their power and the gifts that God has given, and yet God will still accomplish his will in spite of that. God accomplishing his will is part of God's character. Nothing can stop God from doing that. God will accomplish it. And what God will, will, God will accomplish is better than what you and I have planned. They had different plans. God was going to accomplish his will anyways. Our job is to get on board with God's will and how God wants to do it. And the truth of the matter is that you see in this parable, there is judgment for rejecting the son. That seems like the bad news, and it is, if you've rejected the son. Frustratingly, Jesus tells us that the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. Of course, we all interpret ourselves as the righteous immediately, um, and the rain falls, and we wish that for the wicked it would fall in big giant uh, puddles 
that would make it really muddy and they'd sink into them. And for us, it would just make our yards green. But it seems like it's the opposite some of the time. It seems like injustice rules all too often. But, but, the sun is in control. And we need to heed the warning of not rejecting what God has given in the sun. John, the Baptist, gives this warning in Luke 3, 7 and following. He says to the crowds who are coming out, a lot of the same people who are listening to Jesus, realizing, oh, he's talking about us. He talks to those people. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Judgment is coming. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not keep saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There is judgment at the end. I do want to make sure that we hear clearly, though, this matters, that when Jesus tells this parable, remember, he's talking about the religious leaders, the vineyard is not Israel, it's the kingdom of God here, whereas it was Israel and Isaiah. We have to be careful that we don't practice replacement theology to say that all those who are Jewish now are ejected completely from God's care, and the church has simply replaced that. It's a much more complicated story than that that God is doing, um, but that has been used as a premise for much anti-Semitism in this world, and there are many commentators who will say that that's not the point that Jesus is getting at. We want to be very careful, but that what John the Baptist says is, look, God has a lot of faithful people he can bring in here for fruitfulness. Don't think you can just rely on being grandchildren of the people who were fruitful before. You need to be fruitful as well and not reject what God has given. God will accomplish his will. Are you on board with that and his ways? Second thing is the sun is the key to God's best. Turns out that that's better than your personal best or my personal best. I'm not competitive against other people in this life. Drives my wife crazy because she is. Um, I'm very competitive against myself. I want to do everything I do better every single time. The sermon I'm delivering now, I want to deliver next week's sermon better. That's already working in my head to try and figure out how to do that. I compete against myself to do things better. In verse 1, Jesus said, it's, he said, a man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, he dug a pit for the wine press, he built a watchtower. That is to say, he put everything in place that would make this work. And not just make this work, but make it possible for the tenants to enjoy what was given. Right? The, the vineyard itself, the fruit is given, the protection is given twofold. In a, in a vineyard like this, there's a wall around it for the small pests and a watchtower for the big pests. That's why you have those things there, to make sure that things are protected. And then there's the wine press, so you can actually enjoy the fruit that you grow. Right there, on site. Everything needed to prosper is given in the vineyard. And in the vineyard, the tenants are to recognize the giver of good and be generous with the fruit that they've been given. And there will be plenty for them when they do that. When they follow through with the plan. God's best is better than your plans or my plans, as it turns out. And our plans need to fit underneath God's plans. Otherwise, they get in the way of God's plans, just like these guys. If they would have put their plan underneath the owner of the land's plans, they would have been in fine shape. Instead, they put it in front, right? So we can have nice, simple plans, right? Friday's going to come after a long week, and you've come to the Good Friday service, and you go home, and what do you want to do? Let's have some popcorn and watch some Netflix. God's plans are bigger than those. Next week, maybe you've got 
a big project coming up in work. Maybe you've got a big project that's going to change the trajectory of how you do things in the company, of what's going to happen. Or in the coming weeks, you've got that. Those are all good things. But guess what? God's plans are better. Maybe you've invested very carefully in ministries around the world and missionaries who are doing remarkable work at sharing the gospel in new territory, at eliminating global poverty, and you give to those things. Those are all good things, but God's plans are even better than those. Why? Because God's plans are better because as his vineyard grows and flourishes, the actual problems that things like that are trying to solve are done away with. The power of sin, of evil, of injustice, and death will no longer reign when the kingdom comes. When we say yes to the Son, that's the problem he's solving. The fruit will flourish and will be given all we need when we say yes to him. Watching Netflix with popcorn, perfectly fine, right? Working hard at your job, do it please, right? Alleviating global poverty and taking the gospel to new territories, yes, we should all be on board with that, but they all fall underneath the grand plan that God has of his kingdom coming through his son, that that happens. The son is the key. The tenants missed the point of what God was doing in his vineyard. On Palm Sunday, the people waved their palms around as Jesus came in. They shouted. I don't know if you heard it subtly in Psalm 118 when it was read this morning during our opening worship, but some of the words that they were yelling were there in Psalm 118. God save us. Those kinds of words were there. They're yelling those kinds of words on purpose. They're Messiah words. We know that you have something for us, but their hope was set too low. They're yelling the right words with the wrong hope. And they were not unlike the tenants of the vineyard who set their hope too low too, just thinking of how this would benefit me, not thinking of how I'm doing the will of God and the work of God in this world. In Jesus' parable, he also uses Psalm 118, different part of it, to tell us that we should receive the foundation stone, that is the sun. Otherwise, everything's going to fall apart. God has provided it. Don't stumble over Jesus. Instead, build your life on it. Don't miss the signs, basically. When Jesus says they sent all these servants, those are the prophets. They sent the servants over and over, the prophets, they came, they were abused. God's son comes and he is killed, but God will still accomplish his will and the son is the key. Have you said yes to the son? Have you built your life on the foundation of the son or are you stumbling over him today? Make him the cornerstone. Don't reject the son. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to get distracted in this world by many good things and many really good things. But if those aren't the really great things that you've called us to, to be partners in building your kingdom through your Son and by the power of your Spirit, then God, we don't want any part of those things. We know that all parts of our life need to fall and fit underneath your plans. There are many good things you've called us to, but they no longer are good we don't put you first as our foundation. 
So Lord, this morning where we have replaced you, where we have put other stones in your place, where we even have built a foundation of our life in a different place, and it's just about ready to crumble, Lord, we say yes to you. We say yes to you in the big ways. We say yes to you in the little ways. That when we understand that the rain will fall on the righteous and the wicked alike, Lord, that we want to be called the righteous. Faithful to you through and through. Even when it seems like evil and injustice are winning the day, we know that you have already won, Lord. The victory is in you. Win that victory in us as well. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.